Love the cases. Love the clauses. Love the adverbs and the antecedents. Love the words. From ELFM. Hello and welcome to East Leeds FM. Love the words. First of all, uh, in this two-hour um, episode of Love the Words, we have an item that relates to the announcement this week by the government of a 1.5 billion recovery package for the arts. Um, I saw an article in uh, the Guardian by Sarah Brigham who is artistic director uh, of Derby Playhouse, Derby Theatre. I'm going to quote a few uh, a few paragraphs from Sarah's article and then we're going to hear something from well four people who I've interviewed over the last four or five weeks here on Love the Words. Messages of hope, really, from them. So, first of all, from Sarah Brigham. At this time, more than ever, we as a society need a space to heal, regroup and re-examine our world and is in the vital area of participatory arts that we as an industry can ensure this. We must not step away from our duty to ensure that the gains made over the last few years in equality, inclusion and diversity are built upon and accelerated. We can and must do better at ensuring every part of our nation is represented in our workforce, on our stages, in our galleries, on our screens. This must not be lost in the scramble to return to how we used to do things. A new normal that is broader, deeper and ultimately more exciting for artists and audiences is possible. Let the rescue package be an opportunity. That's from Sarah Brigham in The Guardian this week. Very heartening, as is the package from the government. Let's see how it's distributed. In the meantime, we're going to hear just extracts from these interviews that I did uh, over the last three or four uh, months. Deborah Dickinson is a producer, works with Mind the Gap. Francois Matarasso uh, is a commentator, writer about uh, community arts, participatory arts in the UK. Steve, Steve Dearden is artistic director of The Writing Squad, fantastic young people's project, writing project over the north. And Matt Black is a writer and writing practitioner in schools and the community context. Let's see what they have to say about the situation we're in now and the opportunities that we have. <laughs> opportunity to rethink things to look at the models we've been working in and think how can we do things better how can we be more inclusive and accessible where are the places that we can make theatre now and I think actually looking at some of the signs I think being outside is probably safer than being inside so are the things that we can do in parks and public places um, where we engage with people in a different way and how can we make sure that when theatres reopen that everybody feels um, welcome, that it isn't just for a certain group of people. How can we look at our um, prices of tickets? How do we look at the way that we put on performances? I think there are lots of exciting um, 
challenges for us to think about and think about how we do differently. What more can we do digitally? Because certainly people have really tuned in to the way that things are happening digitally. Um, so, yeah, I think there's good opportunities for us out there. Well, that's a really positive way of looking at things. And somebody said about a different crisis, we mustn't waste the crisis. We must, you know, use it as a uh, as a time to think forward and to think uh, to think differently about our spaces. So, yes, go on. Were you just going to say something there? I was just going to say I think it's really important to be subversive as well. I think, um, you know, we all toe the line a lot. And I think now we could be a bit more revolution revolutionary, guerrilla-like. You know, how could we just pop up and do something somewhere as long as it's safe? But... <laughs> How, how can we do those pop-up things? A bit like Banksy with the images he puts on walls. How can we make theatre that just arrives and appears um, in the same way that Banksy does? And just be subversive. Start a bit of a revolution. Yeah, what are your how? Where are we going to go from here in terms of community arts? I, I, I honestly don't know. I'm worrying about it a lot. I'm thinking about it a lot. I think the whole art world uh, is currently paralysed by the social distancing. If we have to to stay two meters apart. If we have to uh, have only small numbers of people gathered, then it becomes very difficult to know how we can do our work. I couldn't do the workshop, the writing workshop I did last year. I couldn't do it today. I couldn't get all of the people that I worked with would fall into the highly vulnerable um, uh, category in terms of the, the the COVID-19 mm. illness. So uh, how could I possibly ask people to come and, and join me and sit in a room and, and do something? Um, so I really don't know what the answer is going to be. And the paradox, though, is that I think we, we are going to come out of this traumatized and I, I'm always hesitant when I use that word because it sounds like a really big word, but a lot of people are going to be badly hurt by this lockdown. They will have lost people they, they loved. They will have lost work. They will have lost the sense of what their future was. They will have lost confidence. All kinds of, of problems will have occurred. Um, and I think a lot of uh, there will be a lot of, of need for the kind of work that community artists do. At the same time, there has been an extraordinary uh, surge of people making art themselves. One of the nicest projects that, that I've seen um, is the, the lamppost gallery that Slung Low have done in Leeds. Um, collecting people's, well, uh, inviting people to put a picture on their doorstep, Slunglow then take a photograph of it, 
have it printed and laminated and put on a on a lamppost so that when people are out for their daily exercise they can see their own picture but also all the other pictures of people in the neighborhood i think this we're seeing a, a huge rise in social solidarity and people people are, are, are meeting neighbors that they may have lived with for a long time without ever actually having said more than hello so i think the need is there and the desire is there our challenge is how do we find ways of, of responding to that creatively and humanly and with kindness Tell us about the writing squad. What's happening now? How? What in response to this COVID nineteen crisis we're in? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to make it absolutely clear that for individuals, it's been a terrible time. Um, for for lots of them, some have some have enjoyed a break. Some have enjoyed having more uh, time to do what they really want, rather than work in kind of low paid jobs for people who don't respect them very much um but you know the, the, just like everybody else there are people who've been furloughed and don't know if they're going to go back to jobs there's been people who've been furloughed and not been able to cope with all that time there's people who've been left high and dry by universities or um you know and there's people obviously who've lost um relatives so you know it's for for individuals you have to say it is a really difficult and obviously a horrible time for the organization it has been fantastic um, because it has given us a new iteration if you like and, and it's funny in january i was really thinking what what, what you know what's going to be different what's are we just going to do the same thing again which i'm not very keen on although the model remains the same there's always something different i couldn't quite see what it was going to be this time. And I've been doing quite a lot of thinking, bizarrely, about, um, again, this kind of irritation with the with the art structures that they're all around buildings. And I'd heard a woman in Toronto from Microsoft talking about a new building in Amsterdam and how it was amazing because um, nobody had desks and you had to book a desk and you all work remotely and they're encouraging people to work from home as if it was new. And I was thinking, the writers have been doing this forever even before the internet that's how writers operated um you know and they say each other letters <laughs> but now um you know we we, we 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 still operate as this dispersed um set of individuals who use some sort of communication tool to interrelate and um so when covid started to happen it suddenly made us completely ready. And we'd already been using Zoom to bring in people to workshops um, who are either abroad or we have a, um, uh, one of our writers is in palliative care, so it enabled her to, to attend workshops. So Zoom was a thing in our lives already. Um, but now we're all on it and um, we're doing it more often. So we used to do 12 to 15 workshops a year. We're doing, uh, we're doing five a week now. <laughs> Um, we've, we, 
we asked them what they wanted. Um, they wanted more workshops. So we put on more workshops on Zoom. Um, they're leading a lot more workshops. Um, we're doing these things called mini goals, where um, either playwrights or prose writers or or um, poets meet once a week and um, agree a small achievable goal. They can't have a big goal. The big goals are banned. So if they want to write the epic novel of Corona, they have to go and talk to. Um, Francesca about that they can't bring it up in the meeting it has to be a small one like to write 500 words to go swimming to look after myself to you know get up at a proper time or you know whatever it is it could be anything it's been quite fun I go to the beach was one of them which was fine and then we meet again and just review that and that's been this real kind of more micro level of support which we've not had before and I think we're not going to be able to put that back in the box we're going to have to continue that in some way maybe less often maybe more of one of the self-sustaining communities that we develop and then um, in terms of the workshops um, it's brought a whole new lot of people in who haven't been involved with the squad for a few years or people who've not been able to attend um, the physical workshops because of you know various reasons to do with their health or anxiety or, or whatever so it's, it's really brought this new um, energy and a new dynamic to what we're doing. And it's really, really exciting. Um, we've just recruited the new squad. And whereas normally I would meet them physically, which is great because it means I go to their place. So, you know, I'd go to Saltburn or Cumbria or, or wherever and meet them in their, in their where they lived, which I think was, again, a defining thing about the, the squad. Whereas this time what we're doing is we're, um, you know, meeting them in threes. There's a previous member of the squad there at that meeting. So we're meeting them in a different way. And I've not worked out yet whether that kind of, um, you know, having more people there outweighs the value of me, you know, spending a bit more time with them individually, actually where they are. Um, it'll be interesting to see. And although I'm really looking forward to the physical workshops when we when we walk together to go and buy food at lunchtime and sit and eat together, and maybe walk to the station together and just have that completely um, different kind of physical interaction with people. Um, you know, there, there are, we're not hanging around waiting for that. We're getting on and um, doing things in a different way. And that's, that's, that's just exciting. Um, mm. And as I say, it's, it's going to, if, in some ways, a lot of what's gone on in the last few months has felt a bit like when people move up to Leeds from the south and they start, they meet us and they say, you know, they keep telling us about all the fantastic things that there are in Leeds as if we didn't know. And that wasn't the reason we decided to stay or Manchester or wherever in the north. Mm. You know, that kind of arrivist enthusiasm that feels a bit like that in a lot of the art sector at the moment. Mm. You know, they're, they're, they're getting all their old postcards and things out and putting them on the internet and, you know, their holiday photos. And I mean, a lot of that's quite good, obviously. I'm, I'm exaggerating for effect. But, you know, it does feel that I'm just worried that, you know, as soon as this is all over, they'll go back to being exactly how they were before. And all the inequalities, that lack of visibility, the lack of resources that literature has will just be baked into whatever settlement is happens afterwards to bail out all the buildings that didn't have the courage to furlough their staff straight away um, and uh, we're very slow at adapting and have built up 
you know, debt have, have built up a kind of inertia and are already, you know, I know they have to plan for the future, but the discourse when you're in meetings with these people is all about recovery. And it's very difficult to, to, to have a different narrative, which is saying, you know, we're beyond recovery. We're already in a new country and it's very exciting. And we've, we've been, you know, led by circumstances rather than reacting to them. Sounds great, and it's it sounds uh, it's very cheering to hear to hear about this positivity and about and uh, in terms of yeah carrying this through into a, a new world. Are you are you are you saying in a way that literature needs to be? Um, I mean, obviously, it has been quite building based. The arts is quite building based, but is this what we're moving away from in, in generally across the arts? Well, the arts isn't building based um, really. You know, it's a bit like saying religion is building based. And of course, you know, churches are a big part of religion, but, you know, the, the, the actual act of religion is a daily or hourly or minute by minute process. Um, and you feel it again. I was in a meeting the other day of the kind of Manchester Arts Mafia, and they were all talking about starting again. And I was saying at one, there's some quite a lot of young people in this meeting. I was just saying at one stage, look, it's happening now, you know. We've just been doing this mail art project. Here it is. It's just come through the mailbox now. Um, you know, people are making stuff. The theatre doesn't happen just when it's on the stage. You know, it's been written in playwrights' heads now. Um, people are trying out ideas with each other now. People are singing with each other. People are, you know, it's just happens all the time. And this idea that it only only uh, only happens when it's in these things that attract all the resources and all the attention and, and is run by a kind of um you know quite small group of cultural apparatchiks who who act as gatekeepers and dictators of what happens um and most of them all come from a similar sort of place um but actually you know if particularly i think if you look at to the younger generations art is just happening all the time everywhere and the institutions are just haven't a clue about that really and haven't a clue how to you know what their role in that is which is just actually to open the doors you know and where i've always thought and there are other people who have said this that you know buildings should not be run by people single people you know, if you look at all the cultural institutions in the Leeds, they're run by the buildings are run by single people who decide the program. If you open up that and put about you know twenty companies or fifteen companies and loads of individuals in those buildings, they will suddenly become much more exciting and much more interesting places. I'm, I'm, I, although, although it's cloudy, I am completely optimistic because uh, since the very, very, very dawn of everything, we have been storytellers and, um, and we will continue to be so and we will continue to need to tell our stories and whatever makes it more difficult um, makes it, makes it, more necessary really and um you know the the harder it is the harder we will push i'm, I'm quite sure uh and it may only be hard in 
certain ways you know people constantly adapt and people have adapted really quickly to um, what's happened in some amazing ways um, and we'll carry on adapting I'm quite quite sure Love the haiku, love the sonnet, love the quatrain and the couplet, love the words, from East Leeds FM. You're listening to Love the Words on East Leeds FM. Next up, an interview that Tony Macaluso, our co-director at Chapel FM, did with Alison Andrews and Helen Thompson of the performance ensemble run by Alan Lydiard, the director, who did an interview with us a few weeks ago, actually. You can access that on our website. Everything is up there for listen again. So, Tony with Alison and Helen. So next up here on East Leeds FM, I am talking with Helen Thompson and Alison Andrews from the Performance Ensemble. Hello. 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 So thanks for joining us. First, tell us what the Performance Ensemble is and this amazing and, and really powerful project that you're all working on. So I got, I got involved with the Performance Ensemble with my husband back in September. Prior to that, um, I got into the arts and dance movement writing back in 2016 uh, with the Younger Arts Project, which was a collaboration between Yorkshire Dance, Leeds Playhouse, the Grand Theatre, um, City Varieties. Um, and so they, they came, they did outreach in various places and one of them was in Rothwell. And I, designed, I picked up a leaflet in Morley. Um, and as you do, you pick up a leaflet thing that looks interesting. You put it away and you forget about it. However, we, I looked at it again, and um, at that time I was being a carer and looking after my mum, so not making time for myself. My husband was concerned about that, so he said, come on, let's go to try one of these meetings. And I think, as a lot of people, you, you think, well, okay, we'll have a go, but it's probably not for me. But we went, and we've never looked back. So it's taking that first step and thinking, well, okay, I've not done arts, I've not done drama, I've not done movement and dance, never did that. They didn't have it at school in my day. Um, so I don't know anything about it, but come along and have a go. And and that was that's where it all started. And that's the director of working with, uh, with Performance Ensemble, Alan Lidyard. That's when we first met him and worked with him. Um, and it's opened up a world of opportunities. And it's a group of people from different backgrounds some are professionals and they they do tutor us but just it's just normal people and we get the opportunity to write um learn about how to write how to um deliver something we've written so it's not acting it's it's how to actually deliver a piece of poetry or writing that you've done we've had the opportunity to uh, be involved with choreographers writers dancers and um, a very talented mus uh, musician and uh, song teacher. 
and we, you know, there's, so there's singing. There's a bit of a bit of everything, but it's a very friendly group. It's non-judgmental, very inclusive, very very helpful and supportive. So it's it's a great it's a great thing to get involved in. And and I would just suggest to anybody who thinks, well, yeah, it all sounds good, but it's not for me. Um, and it is actually basically for 60s and overs. We'd love it if people can come and get involved. And what we're currently looking for and working towards is collecting 1,001 stories from people in Leeds and the surrounding area throughout West Yorkshire and Yorkshire, um, beyond even, um, and short stories, anecdotes, poems. It can be three sentences. It can be four to 500 words. We want to be able to perform these on a, and we're hoping to get 16 double-decker buses and invite people to come along and listen to the stories that we've produced. But we are also publishing them as well. So you just get involved as much or as little as you want and there is support to help you along along that journey. So we do hope that people feel that they would like to come and be involved in this. Well, and just as that humble leaflet opened up a whole new journey for you. Anyone listening now to this radio program who's interested, there are ways they can get involved. You can get involved right now. And Alison, so if somebody's listening to this program and wants to become part of this project, what's the what's the best next step? Well, there are a number of ways that people can um, can get involved. And um, the first thing for people who have got access to the internet is there is a website which is www.performanceensemble.com and that will give you a really clear idea of the kinds of people who are involved um, and the kinds of, of stories that people are telling. Because when we use the word story, just as Helen said, it's a very, very loose idea. Poems, thoughts, anecdotes, dreams, you know, whatever, whatever gets, you, gets you going uh, are all things that are really interesting to have. And you can read some of the stories that other members of the performance ensemble have, have written and they are they're up on the website and there's also a Facebook page so you can leave a message on the on the website but also if people don't have access to the internet and they want to like to have a phone call um, with me then I can give out my uh, my phone number at the end of the program and people can just give me a call and we can have a chat about it um, so yeah a number of different ways that people People can get involved. The other way that people could get involved, if they if they don't even want to have a phone call, um, is they could p- write something down and pop it in the post. And again, I'll be the post person um, for that. So we're trying to make it as as easy as possible for anybody that wants to to get involved. In twenty twenty three, what what's going to happen? What are you envisioning? Well, in some ways, um, it, it's a bit. Uh, we we we'll have to get our crystal ball out and imagine what things are going to be like in 2023. Obviously, what's happened at the moment um, has been very unexpected. Um, the, you know, the, what the effect that the, that the virus has had on our ability to, to socialise and so forth. But the main thing is that 2023 is going to be, we are going to have a, a, an arts and cultural festival in Leeds, and Leeds City Council is supporting the performance ensemble to be part of that festival. Um, so we still have the vision of the 16 double-decker buses, which are going to be travelling all around Leeds, where people can come on board and they can sit next to somebody who will tell them a story. And we'll be also able to collect more stories. And so it's going to be called Bus Pass, uh, with a nod to the idea that people over a certain age 
have a bus pass. And we've got lots of stories about the freedom that having that bus pass has given people where they're able to, to travel. So, what, uh, so the idea of, of putting this call out um, to encourage people to get involved is we're thinking of it as a kind of telephone tree if you like. Um, some people who've had children at school will probably remember the telephone tree. It's a way of, uh, of making contact with people without one person being the only one who has to dial all the numbers. So we're trying to think of this as a, as a connected network. And I think, as Helen said, it's a, you know, it's a way of uh, gathering people um, together into what, what's really a large family um, of creative endeavour. So we encourage everyone out there listening, anyone who might be wanting to take part, to get into the telephone tree, to get in touch with Allison and the others at the Performance Ensemble. So Helen, just to close with thinking about stories, can you share a bit about the kinds of stories that you yourself or others you've worked with have told? I, the first one I ever did was, it was about clearing my mum's house after she moved into a care home. And it was a, a short story about that. And I'd, I'd never written before. I didn't think I could write stories. Just share whatever you want. It's, it's, a, it's your story. It's your life. Well, having seen the performance ensemble performed a number of times now, I, I can say that the stories are captivating. And if there's ever been a time when sharing stories, life stories, feels meaningful, it's particularly right now. So thank you so much, Alison Andrews and Helen Thompson from the Performance Ensemble. One more time, just to give listeners the information, the details of how they can get involved. So um, have a look on the website if you've got access to the internet. That's www.performanceensemble.com. And I'm going to give you my uh, telephone number now. So I'm just going to read that out, which is 07738 that's 07738 519 518. Do feel free to give me a call and we can have a chat about um, what you might like to, to, to talk about. And I'll also give my address, which is number 11, Hilton Place. And that's Leeds LS84HE. That's 11 Hilton Place, Leeds ls 84 H E and it would be lovely to give the postman a bit of a, a bit of work to do. I love getting post. Fabulous. Well thank you so much for joining us here on East Leeds FM, Helen and Allison. Thank you. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Love the nouns. Love the pronouns. Impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. Hi, Emma Storr, poet and writer here. I'm going to read you four poems today, all from my pamphlet Heart Murmur that came out last year. The poetry is based on my experience of working as a GP. A great job, but stressful, because it's important not to miss serious diagnoses like cancer. And that can be quite difficult, because patients come with all sorts of symptoms that don't add up to the textbook descriptions of diseases. 
One of the things we were taught as medical students was to look for the red flag signs and symptoms that might suggest a serious problem and not to search for the very rare causes, the unicorns as they were known. My first poem relates to this challenge and is called Differential because doctors learn to differentiate between minor and major illnesses by making a list in their heads of likely diagnoses when they listen to a patient and then examine them. Differential. He offers a mangled tube of ointment, name half obscured on the underbelly. He needs it for those recurring spots. He says it's nothing serious. He's had it before, but it seems to be spreading. No, he doesn't want me to look. She has saved it all up for me. She flourishes a list on lined paper clutched in her pebbled hand, ticks off each item as if this guaranteed a cure. She mentions, as she gets dressed, that new ache she's noticed. It keeps her awake. She hopes it's nothing serious, the beginning of an invasion we can't stop. The baby is hot and fretful. She can't tell me what's wrong. A screech unlike her usual cry, an odour of ill health. No signs of anything serious, but I spread out my safety net, check there are no holes where a little one could slip through. I weigh the evidence, invisible scales tipping towards the obvious. I pray I'm not blind to red flags waving in the wind. I hope I'm not missing the unicorn that is waiting, waiting. My second poem's in the form of a villanelle, and that's a 19-line poem with repeating lines that seemed appropriate for the sad subject of someone developing a brain tumour. So here it is. It's called It Starts With a Fit. It starts with a fit out of the blue. You can't remember how or why. You're shocked. It's happening to you. You're sure it's stress, too much to do. You plan to cut down, to really try. It starts with a fit out of the blue. You lose some words, repeat a few. You grin and laugh. I want to cry. We're shocked it's happening to you. The scan confirms what we guessed is true. It doesn't explain how or why. It starts with a fit out of the blue. You're lost, not sure what you should do. You search for answers in the sky. I'm shocked it's happening to you. You change from a man I loved and knew to someone who seems like a passerby. It starts with a fit out of the blue. You've stopped being shocked. It's happening to you. My next poem's a bit of a light-hearted um, attempt at a story that a patient told me when I was a GP. 
Um, and in fact, it's based on two incidents involving the common slug. It's called Arian Distinctus because that's the scientific name for this creature that I'm sure is happily munching away on the hosta in my garden while I'm making this recording. So, Arion Distinctus. An emergency, she decided, arriving white-faced at the surgery, chains jangling on her leather jacket, the bottle in her hand. I confirmed it had drowned, drowned in milk, a black jelly sweet of a slug, deceased. The environmental officer was brusque, no known risks, best to let the dairy know. The postman had slid on a fat one on the paved path. No bones broken, only sliced skin over his shin, a bruised hip, an embarrassed smile. I wonder what this small, hatless hermaphrodite plans next, slithering through my patients' lives with only mucus for protection, its gleam of destruction. And finally, my last poem is back to the theme of dealing with uncertainty in general practice and worrying about missing a diagnosis. It's simply called examination and mentions some of the anatomical features that a doctor might look for, such as the notch at the top of the breastbone and the area in the abdomen that overlies the appendix, which is known as McBurney's point. So here is examination. When you give me your map, creased and scarred with use, I run my hands over its contours, searching for landmarks I know. The sternal notch, McBurney's point. I don't want to trip on crags or pebbles lying in valleys where I'd expect to find sand. My hands journey in places only a lover might touch. We smile with relief when it's over. You get dressed. I drive home in sudden snow, flurries that change the shape of everything. There'll be black ice in the morning. I ask you to make another appointment. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you so much to Emma Storr for her poems. And now we're going to hear a short story from Pam Line. Just to say that, um, as many of you will know, we've been featuring uh, writing from around Leeds, but all over the world, actually, in Wordy Birds every morning on our FM show, Keeping a Distance, Staying Close. All those uh, pieces of writing, all those Wordy Birds episodes are up on our website. Tony Macaluso has done a fantastic job of archiving them all. People are still sending in, in writing and we really want to feature it. So that's why we're hearing uh, pieces of new writing uh, again from all over West Yorkshire and beyond, including this piece by Pam Line. After Pam Line, we're going to be hearing Charlotte Carrick's regular feature um, writing really from young people uh, on the writing squad which is a fantastic uh, project 
training uh, training program really for young writers across the north of England, uh, run by Steve Dearden. So first of all, Pam Line. Halloween. The night was damp, fog swirled round the lampposts intrusively creeping into crevices. The shops were closed, shoppers had gone home to warm hearts. Old men in cloth caps were stamping their feet on the doormat as they went into the Liberal Club. The window of the shop was decked with strings of lights in the shape of crescent moons. They blinked on and off. A besom stood in the corner swathed with hairy black spiders hung on string. A witch's hat perched on top of a balloon painted with a scary face, fangs dripping with blood. A battered musquash hat sat on top of a carved pumpkin. And me, beautiful, resplendent on a mannequin. There was a scratchy noise coming from behind. Someone or something was creeping up on me. I shouted, who is it? What are you doing? No response. The scratching stopped. I remember Master John playing this game. Statues, he called it. Tonight it would seem that I was it. In days gone by, I could move, swished along by Lady Coots. Now I was immobile. A teddy bear inched towards me. Got you! I cried as light-heartedly as possible. Oh, what fun! Usually nighttime was so boring. A doll crept forward. Behind her stood a ninja turtle with flashing lights. He was strapped with weapons. He smiled, showing perfect plastic teeth. The rocking horse swung on the wooden floor, going hammer and tongs as he moved closer. His tail twitched. So you, you're out of it! I squeaked breathlessly. The horse whinnied, or was it a shriek? Small throaty laughs surrounded me as the street lights switched off. A woolly snake with blue and green spots slithered by. A wind-up crow landed on my shoulder shouting, Caw! 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 and pecked at my seams. Frozen fingers of foot whirled round. What had I done to upset them? I adorned the window. I was by far the best thing in this raggle-taggle charity shop. Leave me alone. You're all worthless. You'll make 50 pence each if you're lucky. My ticket is marked at 25 pounds. A jack-in-a-box jumped, waved its head with a red slash for a mouth and a nose like a Belisha beacon. In a follow falsetto voice it sang Nelly the elephant packed her trunk and said goodbye to the circus the teddy bear was the next one to reach me he had a patch over one eye like a pirate his claws caught my hem and I heard it tear get away you ruffian I know what it is you think you think that I'm posh because I'm real fur not nylon stuffed with dacron. What do you want? This came out as more of a whimper than a question. The musquash hat at the front of the window tittered. And you can shut up, they'll be after you next. The snake slid up and wound its body around my collar. I felt it reach down. 
with a forked tongue it tied my sleeves together behind my back. The crow pulled tufts of fur from my collar. Oh, stop this at once, you're hurting me. Go back to the shelves or there'll be trouble in the morning. The crow flew and perched on a tall flower pot stand. Something clanked as it dragged on the floor. A pinprick of light threw ghostly shadows on the walls. The toys were stamping their feet, chanting. Here comes a candle to light you to bed. Here comes a chopper to chop off your head. The crow called out. Silence in court. Have we reached a decision? At that moment, a large knitted purple kangaroo hopped from behind the changing room curtain. Aye, gobbers, you can't reach a decision without me, and I say yes. Yes, yes, let's get her! The mob brayed and charged. The crow tore off the label at the back of my neck. It said, 100% wild mink. Wild laughter. <laughs> And welcome to Love the Words. This is the part of the programme where I, Charlotte Carrick, bring you work from The Writing Squad, an innovative development programme for writers living and working in the north of England. Today we're talking about fake gardening, sacred doorstops and angry electrical currents. And we're also going to talk about A Diary of Windows and Small Things, an experimental film shot during lockdown by Stevie Ronnie and 21 writers living in the UK, France and Germany. But first, we're going to hear from Ruth Yates. Fake gardening. Today, it's time to do the garden again. I put on the gloves, the shoes. I feel like a fake gardener, somehow. I planted my sunflower sprouts upside down and they had to do a kind of hula hoop to grow their shoots up, like a loop-the-loop fairground ride for insects and young slugs. We are filling the water butt with grey water from the sink, but today next door's cat is crouched quietly on the steps. I wait. I have seen a squirrel once flash across the garden. Wood pigeons in the conifer hedge coo aggressively. Magpies do their chuck-chuck at me when I try to do any work. They sit in the tree and shit on the washing. I thought we were growing wild asparagus, but it's bindweed. They are easy to pluck out, but leave their network of roots which extends under the garden like electricity wiring, ready to crackle out when I'm not there or when it rains. The plant that I thought was celery is called lovage and is also edible. It is already up to my knees. I water it out of curiosity. The huge pile of branches at the side of the garden has grown little spider webs. I wonder if any hedgehogs live there and whether they talk with the spiders or eat them. My notion of the food web is quite vague from school. I remember that people tend to be at the top. There is a line of snails at the top of the patio. They look pretty so I leave them there. 
somewhere empty anyway. It's easy to do a day's work of noticing in ten minutes, perhaps because it's spring. The wild strawberries are in flower. I can't wait for their tiny fruits. I feel like I got a real sense of your garden there, Ruth, and I love the concept of spending a day's work of noticing. I think lockdown has taught us that, that maybe we should take more time to really look at the things around us. And I really enjoyed the little world as well that was created, so a big thank you for sharing your work with us, Ruth. Ruth's piece came from the Staying Home site, which can be found at stayinghome.squadsite.uk. Next up, we have Lydia. The little dog doorstop. His brown collar has a name tag with the Chinese for death. I think of fierce loyalty, man's best friend. His eyes are glassy and his nose heart-shaped. He is, ironically, in the cobra yoga position, meaning he forever looks like he's crawling from being crushed. He was a gift, which mostly saves things from being thrown away. I took him on holiday, another factor in objects staying safe. That and having a face. But there's more to my keeping him. I think of little Jay, insisting I took him away to secure my hotel room. I was going alone, and she wanted to know I would be okay. For ten days, I slid him in the gap under foreign doors, each time reminding myself that some fear is good, that other people's fear presents itself as love. We always love having Lydia Allison's work on Love the Words. She's a great poet and, well, a really great person too. You can follow her on Twitter at Lydia R. Allison. I definitely recommend doing so. The Little Dog Doorstep was part of a diary of windows and small things. In April 2020, a few weeks after Europe had entered lockdown, 21 writers living in the UK, France and Germany agreed to collaborate with artist Stevie Ronnie. Each writer was given a time of day to work with and asked to record the view from their window alongside a new piece of writing. These recordings were then arranged chronologically into a video diary that creatively documents this strange and unique moment in history. We will be sharing some of these pieces over the next few weeks as part of Love the Words. If you would like to view the film, you can do vimeo.com slash Stevie Ronnie. And next, awkwardly introducing myself, it's me, and this is Conduct. I feel like something's taking from me. I'm being extended, power pulled and distributed. I will shock you. Stop overusing me, jamming those three points until it clicks into place. On. The presence, motion of matter, hot slot voltage, running through me, rising. Bitch, please use an adapter. I'm not universal. You don't really understand it, do you? Some sort of circuit. Crossed wires. What's behind there? Me. If I'm not working, you're not working. Push me too far and I will spark. Conduct was part of a diary of windows and small things. Do listen out for more work coming soon from the project on Love the Words. 
Next, we're going back to Ruth for our final piece. Ruth is, of course, part of the writing squad and lives in Sheffield. She works as a speech and language therapist and recovery tutor. Her poems have been published in magazines such as The North and Route 57 and in the anthology Introduction X, the poetry business book of new poets. You can follow her on Twitter for tweets about mental health and speech and language at Ruthie Salt. Take it away, Ruth. Clapping the carers. It's clap the carers time. Time to get to know the neighbours again from our doorsteps. I go out to the front of the house. The man from two doors down is out smoking in his dressing gown, so I shout hello. A boy in big flip-flops pads along the sidewalk, turns to look. I wave. He looks surprised, perhaps by how loud I am clapping. His mum calls and he turns and flip-flops back. There is no sign of next door's cat tonight. A pigeon swoops across the street. I'm sure they didn't used to fly that low. I can't see anyone else from here, but I can hear them. A taxi beeps, and somewhere, fireworks. I don't want the clapping to end, but it does. Silence. The latch clicks. Inside it's warm. On TV, people are still clapping. It's going to be a long night. Thank you to all of our listeners and contributors for today's show. Catch us at the same time next week for more Love the Words. Until then, stay safe and take care. The Hole in the Ark One evening at dusk as Noah stood on his ark, putting green oil in starboard side lamp, his wife came along and said, Noah, something's wrong. Our cabin is getting quite damp. Noah said, Is that so? Then he went down below and found it were right what she'd said, for there on the floor quite a puddle he saw. It was slopping round under the bed. Said he, There's an hole in bottom somewhere. We must find it afore we retire. Then he thought for a bit and he said, Ah, that's it, a bloodhound is what we require. So he went and fetched bloodhound from place where it lay, between the skunk and the polecat it were, and as things there below were a trifle so-so, it were glad of a breath of fresh air. They followed sound as it went sniffing round, till at last they located the leak. T'were a small hole inside, about two inches wide, where a swordfish had poked in its beak. And by gum, how the wet squatted in through that hole. Well, young Shem, who at sums was expert, worked it out on his slate that it came at the rate of per gallon per second per squirt. The bloodhound tried hard to keep water in check by lapping it up with dung, but it came in so fast through that hole that at last he shoved in his nose for a bung. The poor faithful hound, he were very near drowned, they dragged him away none too soon. For stream, as it rose, pushed its way up its nose and blew him up like a balloon. And then Mrs Noah shoved her elbow in all and said, Eh, hey, it stopped, I believe. But they very found they found very soon as she'd altered her tune, for the water had gone up her sleeve. When she saw as her elbow weren't doing much good, she said to Noah, I've an idea. 
You'll sit on leak and bite into the week. There's no knowing the weather may clear. Noah didn't think much to this notion at all, but reckoned he'd give it a try. On the all down he flopped and the leaking all stopped and uh, all except him were quite dry. They took him his breakfast and dinner and tea as day after day there he sat. Tilt rain were all past and they landed at last on top side of Mount Ararat. And that is how Noah got them all safe ashore. But ever since then, strange to tell, them as helped save Ark has all carried Mark, aye, and all their descendants as well. That's why Dog has a cold nose and ladies cold elbows. Uh, you'll also find if you inquire, that's why a man takes his coat tails in hand and stands with his back to fire. Love the commas. Love the apostrophes. Love the colons and the question marks. Love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, little. No, no, little. Thank you to Keith Fenton there for that uh, monologue by Stanley Holloway. Um, Keith's got plenty more where that came from. They're always a welcome relief, actually. It's great to hear some rhymes. Thanks, Keith. And before that, thank you to Pam Line for that Halloween story. And before that, obviously, to Emma Store. Um, and we'll be hearing more from Emma in writing on air which we're hoping to reschedule later in the year emma is a gp as she mentioned and she's done a really beautiful series of programs about the relationship of uh, of vision and medicine cures over the ages for eye complaints very very interesting and more from her later in the year so now to finish off love the words we have an interview with Kevin Howlett about the White Album by the Beatles. Kevin is a writer. He uh, is an, also an expert on music of all kinds, but particularly the Beatles, a world expert, I should add. He wrote the sleeve notes for the reissue of the White Album uh, last year, 1968, of course, is when the, uh, when the White Album came out. Uh, Kev's written many books about the Beatles he's absolutely fascinating this is his analysis of 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 the White Album in response to my questions about 18 months ago um, he had intimate uh, knowledge shall we say of the outtakes from the White Album sessions 50 years ago here talking about the White Album Kevin Howlett
So you're listening to Love the Words here at Chapel FM Art Centre on East Leeds FM. And we've got a very special edition tonight. We're talking to uh, Kev Howlett, world expert on the Beatles. And uh, he's been very much part of what he's going to tell you about tonight, the reissue of the album, uh, the White Album by the Beatles. So, Kev, welcome uh, to Chapel FM. Thanks, Pete. So tell us a bit about the package, but but... But particularly about the remixes, because we heard back in the USSR, very familiar, but sounding lustrous in this in this uh, remix. Tell us, tell us about that. It was remixed by Giles Martin, who's the son of the Beatles' original producer George Martin, and uh, he last year had remixed the Sgt Pepper album. The Sgt Pepper album at the time, the mono mix was really the the mix that the Beatles had been involved in, and uh, the stereo mix had been knocked off fairly quickly. And so Giles did a new stereo mix, went down extremely well, sounded fantastic. And then there was a box set with lots of interesting session outtakes. And it seemed, you know, a really good idea to do the same thing for the anniversary of the White Album, 50 years since the White Album. So Giles has done a new stereo mix of the White Album. It's not as radical as the Sgt Pepper remix he did last year. It's fairly faithful, but what you will hear is there a lot more bass bottom end to the tracks, a lot more clarity. You'll hear details that you may not have noticed before. Even in the very good 2009 remaster, uh, this is a different to a remaster. He's gone back to the multi-track tapes and, and remixed from scratch, but always listening to the original mix to make sure that they were on the right track, as it were, that they weren't uh, making things sound worse than the original 1968 mix. I think he's done a fantastic job. And there is a three-CD version of the White Album now that also includes a CD of what are called the Isha demos, acoustic demos that were made in George's bungalow in Isha just before they started recording the White Album. And that's a lovely three-CD package. But if you uh, can afford to invest in the super deluxe version, you'll hear some fascinating session outtakes as well, which I know we'll talk about a little bit later. For many of us, the the place of the White Album within the the kind of the narrative of the 60s and the narrative of the Beatles story is familiar, but for, for some people it won't. So perhaps you could put the White Album in some sort of context for yeah. us. So it came out in 1968, exactly five years after the release of their second album with the Beatles. It won't be long, Just think about that. Five years between With the Beatles and The White Album. With the Beatles is a wonderful pop album. There are 14 tracks on it. Hardly any of them are over two minutes long. It's great pop music. later you have the White Album which to me it seems like they want to play in every style imaginable on that album so you go from really hard rock like Helter Skelter to ballads folky ballads like Blackbird Mother Nature's Son to pastiches of other styles Honey Pie is a pastiche of a roaring 20s jazz age song you've got music concrete on there no it's not a song it's it's a montage of tape Revolution 9 
it's, it's, it's so diverse and, and so eclectic. And in the place in the Beatles story, 1968, you would imagine that they are universally accepted as the greatest band on the planet. And certainly a year before, in 1967, when they made Sgt. Pepper and then they appeared on a TV show uh, called Our World, which was the first satellite link-up to five continents and they performed All You Need Is Love. They seemed to be all-conquering. That was number one for the summer. Sgt. Pepper was number one in the summer of 67. But actually, their manager died in August 67, which was a great shock and had a huge impact on the future of the Beatles. So they were out, the, the, the person who had guided them, Brian Epstein, since 1962. They were looking for some kind of spiritual enlightenment in their lives. Uh, they'd gone through um, using acid. Uh, LSD had been a big influence on some of their spiritual quest and, and maybe affected some of the music. But they were interested in Indian philosophy. They did this, They discovered the Maharishi, Mahesh Yogi. They heard of Brian Epstein's death when they were studying with the Maharishi in, in Bangor in North Wales. They thought, what are we going to do? They decided to do a film called Magical Mystery Tour, which they directed and uh, wrote themselves, which was not universally accepted when it was shown at Christmas 1967. It, most people saw it in black and white. It's very much a film you need to see in colour because of all the effects. And then they went to India in March 68. And uh, there's a Pathé newsreel from that time, you know, which, which sort of portrays the Beatles as these recluses who've gone to the Himalayas and... Uh, people are thinking, what on earth are they up to? So it's interesting that you think the Beatles are going to be universally accepted for whatever they do, but they are starting really from scratch again. Um, obviously, they have a following, but the older generation have completely lost touch with the Beatles. They, you know, they're very the suit at the time, and, and they think, what are they doing with this Indian guru? And um, what's going on? Uh, Anyway, they, they make a single called Hey Jude in August that comes out in August 1968 and that is a pretty phenomenal single to come back with. album follows a few months later but it is a double LP which is very rare at the time Bob Dylan had made Blonde on Blonde and Frank Zappa had made a double LP but they're not that common so there's a lot to digest mm. and, and it's a more expensive item of course and there were a lot of worries from the record company of, oh, can we get away with a double LP by the Beatles and it comes out in a completely white cover and you've had the vivid, colourful, psychedelic sleeve of Sgt. Pepper the previous year. Completely the opposite of what you're going to expect for a Beatles cover. It's completely white with just the word, the Beatles embossed on the front cover. Inside you get a very um, uh, colourful and, and vivid poster and you have all the lyrics and their portraits of the Beatles. But from the point of view of the outside, it's just white. And the album is officially called The Beatles. But very soon everybody calls it The White Album. Motor cars and the bus, bicycles for two, walking hard to do. 
So what they decided to do in 1968, after they came back from India, which was a t peaceful time for them and a time of reflection and a time when they could bond again as a, as a group following the death of Brian Epstein only a few months before. Uh, they did write an enormous amount of songs. They just had acoustic guitars with them, so that's why there are a lot of acoustic tracks on the White Album, because they were written on acoustic guitars. They're very folky. And there was a lecture by Maharishi about nature, Mother Nature. It inspired Paul to write Mother Nature's Son, and John wrote Child of Nature. Uh, very specifically about the circumstances, the first line is on the road to Rishikesh, which is where the ashram was, where they were studying. On the road to Rishikesh I was dreaming more or less And the dream I had was true Yes, the dream I had was true I'm just a child uh, He demoed it in George's house in Isha. That's why these acoustic demos are called the Isha demos. And, uh, you know, Isha, Surrey will now be forever associated <laughs> with these wonderful Beatles recordings. Uh, George had a four-track tape machine, which is the same technology they, they were using in Abbey Road. So these demos are not sounding very, uh, you know, lo-fi. They are hi-fi. They're really good sound quality. And it's a four-track machine, so they can double-track themselves. They double-track vocals and guitars. They take a lot of time and effort over these acoustic demos, but they were never meant to be released. They were just for themselves to, to listen to the songs. They demoed 27 songs in Isha, and 19 of them appeared on the White Album. Child of Nature didn't make it, but the melody was used again by John for his great song Jealous Guy, which appeared on his second solo album, Imagine. I'm just a child of nature I'm one of nature's children Underneath the mountain ranges where the wind that never changes Touch the windows of my soul Touch the windows of my soul um, So, Kev, you've been writing about the Beatles for a long time and tell us about how you, how you, how you got into that and also just about the challenge of writing about music because it's not something it's it, I think maybe something we all feel we can do but actually it's a particular thing so how, how did you first get into it a long time ago actually I joined Radio 1 as a producer in 1981 and a fantastic stroke of luck they knew I was a Beatles fan even though I was 24 at the time and it was 1981 and you know the Beatles I was a child when the Beatles were happening but I was so in love with the Beatles' music as a very young boy. And a letter came into Radio 1 saying, is the BBC aware that it's the 20th anniversary of the Beatles' first session for the BBC? Because in the old days, the BBC hardly played a record, and you had to appear live on shows like Saturday Club. And uh, the Beatles made their first broadcast before they were signed to EMI, actually, in March 62. 
So I investigated through the BBC's written archives what programmes they appeared on, what songs they did. And that was actually comparatively easy to do because all the paperwork's there and the contracts and correspondence. But the tapes weren't there. The BBC hardly kept a thing of pop sessions from the 60s. But I managed to find copies of some of the material they did. And over the years, more and more has come to light. And there have been two albums. One came out in 94 called Live at the BBC. And then five years ago, there was another one, Live at the BBC Volume 2, uh, on air, it was called. And I, and I wrote the sleeve notes for that 1994 album because this was my territory in the Beatles world. And uh, that was so fortunate for me because uh, for a start, the, the programme in 1982, The Beatles at the Beeb, was enormously successful and was broadcast around the world and that was a great start to my producing career. But also, when we, eventually this album came out featuring these, this BBC session material, uh, I was asked to do the sleeve notes, and that wasn't in into the Be- Beatles world. And uh, subsequently, I've written the sleeve notes for all the 2009 remasters, the core catalogue. Uh, I compiled um, a bonus disc for Let It Be Naked, which was a revisit of the Let It Be album, stripping away the Phil Spector embellishments to that album. Wrote the sleeve notes for that. And recently, there have been box sets of vinyl of the Beatles, a, a mono box set, a stereo box set, and I've written the books in those box sets. So, and I wrote the uh, book for last year's Sgt. Pepper release as well. So it's fantastic privilege to be involved in writing these uh, these books in these sumptuous box sets that we have now. Uh, but the other amazing thing, of course, was in order to write in detail about how these songs for the White Album were recorded, I sat in Abbey Road with my colleague Mike Heatley and we listened to every second that they recorded in 1968 and, and EMI were fantastic at keeping the tapes. So every four-track tape and every eight-track tape that the Beatles recorded on in 1968, they're all kept. And so you're going to hear take after take after take mm. of the Beatles recording these songs. And they'd... Uh, taken another approach for the White Album, whereas Sgt. Pepper was very much uh, an album where they layered instruments on top of each other bit by bit by bit, built up a track. Uh, the, they decided with the White Album, we won't do that. We'll play live as a band. And so you can hear them playing in the songs. And, and the Abbey Road engineers recorded every take. Now, in some cases, uh, they would rehearse a song and then wind back the tape and record over that tape. And so previous uh, accounts of their sessions uh, have put statements like, they rehearsed this song all night, but nothing survives from that night. We found that uh, if you listened all the way through to the tape, what they recorded over the top of, when they stopped recording, there is something left from the rehearsal. So there are really interesting discoveries that we came across because of that. I mean, I'm trying to, just as a, as a Beatles fan, I'm trying to put myself in the position of, of you waking up in the morning and thinking, oh, what am I doing today? I'm going in to Abbey Road and I'm listening to the <laughs> Beatles outtakes all day and then probably for, for days on end. I mean, that's just an extraordinary kind of access, isn't it? So you never really knew what to expect, even though you, 
you looked at the recording sheets and you looked at what was on the back of the tape boxes, uh, there would still be jaw-dropping surprises. And, and, and one of them was when we were listening to the tape of Julia. On the tape box, it said three takes. And we listened to those three takes. And that was familiar. It was John recording so that he could record over the top of himself so he could overlap the vocals on Julia. If you listen to the finished version on the White Album, he's singing Julia and then Julia underneath and he carries on. But then the tape went on and then we heard an amazing sequence where John is just trying to sing the whole song all the way through, not doing any double tracking or overlapping. And you can hear George Martin talking to him in his headphones. It's bleeding through and you can hear George Martin's comments. And there's this sequence of, of John just trying to perform Julia. And it, it was just one of those emotional moments. You know, you really feel like you're in the studio with, with John Lennon and George Martin. It was the last song recorded for the White Album. And it's such a beautiful song, of course. So to hear two versions of Julia that no one thought existed up until that moment and be able to release them in this box set. Uh, well, that's just a thrilling and emotional moment. Is it better standing up, you think? <laughs> it's very hard to sing this, you know. Hunt? Yeah, maybe I should strum it first, huh? is meaningless But I say it just to reach you Julia 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 Ocean child calls me So I sing better like that I can sing it better but I can't play it better I'll just try picking it again but slightly faster <clears throat> half of what I say is meaningless but I say it just to reach you Shall I? 
So we've just heard uh, John Lennon strumming and picking Julia, and those versions have never been heard before. And uh, absolutely extraordinary. Talking to Kev Howard here at, um, at Chapel FM. So Kev, I mean, it wasn't obviously just John. It was with all of them that we have this, you know, very sort of secret, private, intimate access to through these outtakes. Um, and I mean, Ringo obviously, traditionally, had sang a song, at least one, on every Beatles album. And tell us about the one um, that, uh, well, Good Night from White Album. Yeah, Ringo gets his own composition on an album for the first time, which is Don't Pass Me By. But uh, John had written a beautiful ballad called Good Night as a lullaby for his son Julian. Uh, Paul thinks that John thought, this is too schmaltzy for me to sing, but it's perfect for Ringo. And <laughs> we are used to, on the White Album, at, right at the end of side four, there's Good Night with Ringo singing and this very lush orchestral version with the Mike Sams singers singing as well. It's a kind of a pastiche. I don't think it's done entirely seriously. I think, I think they, they wanted to go over the top with it. Uh, and Ringo sings very well, actually. And uh, it, it's a... To me, it's like, you know, the end of uh, Dr. Strangelove when you hear we'll meet again as he sails down on top of the missile that's going to blow up everything. Uh, having good night after Revolution 9 is almost like that to me. Uh, so that's the version we're used to. But we were listening to the tapes and we hear this version of good night that's light years away from that. John had recorded himself finger-picking a guitar, very much in the style of Julia or Dear Prudence. Three guitar parts on the four-track tape, and then Ringo sang, and then the Beatles sing harmony with Ringo, and it's so touching, you know. It's an example, actually, of how together they were, because one of the myths about the White Album is that they were completely falling apart, hardly talking to each other, 
And there was no evidence of that on the tapes whatsoever. They were really collaborating together and supporting each other and really working hard on each other's songs. And uh, Good Night is a really good example of how they were all caring deeply about providing a song for Ringo and doing these harmonies in the background for Ringo. Good night, take ten. Well, I think there were certainly times of tension. You can't deny that because Ringo left the group for two weeks and uh, Ringo has said, you know, I went off for a holiday on Peter Sellers' yacht uh, and I wasn't going to come back. But he did come back and his, his drum kit was covered in flowers by George and he'd received telegrams from the other Beatles saying you're the best drummer in the world. So there, there clearly had been a point where Ringo just lost his patience and, and needed a break. Remember, this it was a double album and the sessions were very long and very intense and they were during the night. They'd start at seven in the evening and they often would finish at seven in the morning. They're very long, arduous sessions. So it, it, it was probably just exhaustion in, in playing its part there that, that Ringo felt he needed a break. Jeff Emmerich, who'd recorded the Beatles from the Revolver album onwards and worked on Sgt. Pepper, he left a third of the way into the session saying he, he, he couldn't stand the, the atmosphere of the sessions. Yet, Ken Scott, who took over from Jeff Emmerich, and Chris Thomas, who was George Martin's assistant, they have taken great pains to say they were great fun to work on, these sessions. And, uh, and Ken has said, you know, who's produced albums since, you know, it was no different to any album I've ever produced. You know, it, as you work towards a deadline, there, there there may be arguments, there may be times of tension, but most of the time it was you know it was, it was great fun to work with the Beatles. And you know, the, John and George have talked about the sessions being tense. Um, they may have kind of conflated the White Album sessions with the sessions that came soon after for what turned out to be Let It Be. In January '69, which certainly had tense moments too, but 
And I think rock journalists love that idea of uh, the, the band imploding, and uh, you know, they, it was a the White album was like a individual solo albums where the where the Beatles were just being session musicians for each other's songs. Uh, but there's absolutely no evidence of that. If you listen to the session for "I Will," which is Ringo, uh, John, and Paul. It's such a good-natured session. They're having a lot of fun. They busk songs. Uh, one of the songs that is just made up on the spot is Can You Take Me Back, which you hear just before Revolution 9 on the album. On our Sessions CDs in the Super Deluxe box set, you'll hear the full version of Can You Take Me Back, which is really great to hear. Uh, they, they busked Blue Moon, the old song Blue Moon. Uh, you know, they were having a great time. And, you know, Birthday, that was a song made up in the studio that day. Because on the television that night was the great rock and roll movie, The Girl Can't Help It, which had all their favourite rock and roll heroes in, Gene Vincent, Little Richard, Eddie Cochran. So they decided to do a rock track that day, broke in the middle of the session, went round to Paul's house. He lived near Abbey Road. They all watched The Girl Can't Help It, and they came back and finished off Birthday. So it was written from scratch and completed in one session. And Birthday is just a great riff song and... There's an outtake of just the instrumental backing track of, of Birthday in, in the session CDs. And oh, it's fantastic. You can hear the two guitars of John and George separately, whereas in the finished version on, on the White album that we know, they're, they're fused together on one track, but you can hear them separated left and right on the session CD. Fantastic to hear them riffing. Paul is playing bass. Great drumming from, from Ringo. <laughs> Listening to the sessions, you hear quite a bit of studio chat, and uh, I was very uh, keen to include a lot of the studio chat that you hear on these sessions CDs in the in the box set version. And there's one occasion where they're trying to get happiness as a warm gun uh, 
perfect. And that song is four sections, and it goes from different time signatures. It's quite difficult to play as in one go, but they did it. They, they wanted to do it in one go. They wanted to edit sections together. And at the end, you hear John saying, uh, is anyone finding it any easier? Uh, not fun, but easier. And George pipes up, easier and fun. Is, is anybody finding it easier? It seems a little yeah. easier. Yeah. It's just not no fun, but it's easier. Easier and fun. Oh, all right, if you insist. Well, so, you, you know, it's... Yeah. You know, it, 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 this was not a band falling apart. I mean, they had a lot of things going on in their lives. They just founded Apple, the uh, record company, and which was also f- had fingers in lots of other pies. Uh, there was a clothes store and films and all that kind of thing. So they were being businessmen as well during the day as well as working through the night. But they were certainly enjoying playing together. And remember, they'd stopped touring in 1966, so the only place they could play live was in the studio. And so you, you hear them enjoying playing live. So they they do an enormous number of takes on some songs. Uh, you know, 102 takes on George's song, Not Guilty, which, which didn't did. make it on the White Album. You know, they worked three nights solid, 102 takes, and in the end it didn't get on the White Album. But you'll hear take 102 in this box set. The book that's come out in the Super Deluxe Edition... Uh, which is a beautiful object, by the way. I mean, it's, it really is lovely white, and as you'd expect, with lots of black and white, and but also some lovely colour in it. And and you've written a few chapters in that. Tell us about that writing process and and what you've actually got in that book. Well, there's an enormous a chapter which is called the track by track, where I've written about how each song was written and then how each song was recorded, and, and that's based on my listening to all those tapes at Abbey Road. So it's very detailed, uh, but I know the people out there want to know every detail. <laughs> That's quite a responsibility. There are it is. It is a responsibility. Buffs. And and also these uh, chapters are read by Paul and Ringo, Olivia, Harrison and, and uh, Yoko. Uh, so they are, you know, you have to get it right. And uh, yeah, but it's fascinating to, to and, and be allowed to write as much as I wanted to. That that was the thing. Uh, there was no restriction, and so there is an you know I wrote fifty thousand words in this book um, about the songs, but also about the history between Sergeant Pepper and the White Album recordings, beginning and uh, also they did a, an amazing photographic day in July '68. It's come to be known as the Mad Day Out, where they were followed by photographers around London and they did various um, interesting photographs in in various locations in London. So it's everything you'd really want to know, I think, about the White Album. Um, Because, you you know, this is only going to be done once in this detail. So you, you know, and, 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 you know, the Beatles have always set the bar throughout their career. You know, it's always aiming for the absolute superlative best that you can do and so it's a beautifully designed book it's very white (laughs) as you say Uh, but it's got lovely photographs in there I mean there are uh, photographs of Paul McCartney's notebook that he had in Rishikesh in India you can see his handwritten lyrics for the songs that he wrote in India Mm. fascinating things like that Uh, so you know if anybody is at all interested in the Beatles and the White Album if you can invest in this 
and it's a limited edition it won't be available forever you know it, it really is worth getting hold of this because it is a beautiful i know i've been involved in it but it's a beautiful object to have and, and the audio that you get in the box set those session recordings are just fascinating for example while my guitar gently weeps you hear the isha session version which is george just playing it on acoustic guitar and then you hear on the session cds the first version he did at abbey road was with paul playing harmonium and george playing acoustic guitar and singing now take one has been out before on the anthology cd back in 96 uh, and we were familiar with take one but when we listened to the tape it turned out there was a take two Again, not documented, not written on the recording sheet or the tape box. There's a take two. And that was amazing to hear. Then they recorded it a second time as a band and spent a lot of time on it, but abandoned that version. And then the third version is the version where George brought in Eric Clapton to play guitar. Now, I always imagined that they'd recorded the track, brought Eric in, and he overdubbed a guitar solo onto the finished track. Not so at all. They had Eric there all day and he played on virtually every take of While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And from memory, I think there were 47. And uh, we include take 27 of While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And uh, again, right at the beginning of that, there's a lovely little moment where uh, George is uh, ordering something to eat. I'll just have cheese and lettuce and all my sandwich and coffee. Okay, a one, two, three, four.
Hold it, Harry. So it's okay. I sang, uh, no, tried to do a smoky, and I just aren't smoky. So that was why my guitar gently weeps with Eric Clapton playing live with the Beatles. Why did why did why did George get? He was Eric in. I mean, George was no mean guitarist himself. Yeah, George plays acoustic guitar on that track, and uh, he was matey with with Eric. Certainly, um, it never happened before that they would bring in a fellow rock musician to play. You know, they brought in classical musicians, obviously, to play on their tracks. Uh, there, you know, some people speculate, well, it, it was a, a way of George signalling to the others that he was taking this song very seriously and, uh, you know, they better up their game. But on the other hand, they had worked very hard on this other version, which they had then abandoned. And in fact, uh, Paul does a really crucial piano part on While My Guitar Gently Weeps, that intro he plays. The piano is really crucial to that that track. So Paul, I found listening to the tapes, particularly Paul, was always full of so many arrangement ideas. Uh, when he worked on George's song Long, 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 he's playing organ, and the organ part is very integral to Long, Long, Long. Uh, you know, Paul also was never content to say that'll do he's always pushing his bandmates to keep going keep going keep going and certainly listening to long 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 george harrison himself is saying uh, surely one of them will do and paul's saying no keep going keep going so yeah paul is driving it very much so uh, george martin is finding his role quite different to sergeant pepper where he was very involved in, in in arranging the songs for Sgt. Pepper. The way they're recording the White Album is very different. And again, George Martin was very busy during the day and these sessions are all night. And he did take a three-week holiday while the sessions were going on and, and left his assistant, Chris Thomas, in charge, who was only 21 at the time, as was Ken Scott, the balance engineers, two 21-year-olds recording the Beatles. Uh, but Giles Martin has said of his father that if somebody mentioned to George Martin that the White Album was their favourite album, he'd grimace a bit. And not because he was not fond of some of the album, but the circumstances he found different to Sgt Pepper. And as Giles put it, he lost the classroom. You know, that the boys had really taken over, in a way. But on the other hand, again, in the sessions, you hear the Beatles often asking for advice. And you hear John talking to George Martin during that Julia sequence. You hear Paul asking George Martin, you know, if you hear one that's good, you know, let me know. Um, you hear John before Glass Onion saying, uh, what do you think up there? What do you think upstairs, Chris? And the control room was upstairs from the studio. So they, they, still, they still want feedback, but they know what they're going for. Yeah. And there are occasions, of course, when George Martin takes on his traditional role from the past of, of doing a brilliant arrangement so Paul has Honey Pie this pastiche of a roaring 20s jazz age song and of course George Martin does this beautiful jazz orchestra arrangement for Honey Pie that just lifts that song and he does this great baroque arrangement for Piggies George Harrison's song interesting when I was listening to Piggies that there was takes where it just didn't seem to be happening and George was doing a guide vocal, not a vocal that was going to be a lead vocal. So he wasn't even singing all the way through. And you listen to these takes, and then suddenly the seventh take has the harpsichord on it. 
and the whole thing comes alive then. And one of the one of my favourite uh, little bits of trivia that we found out while I was writing the book was the story is Chris Thomas wandered around Abbey Road that night and in Studio One, which is the big orchestral studio, there was a harpsichord set up. And he thought, oh, maybe a harpsichord would be good on piggies. And he was going to say to Ken Scott, let's wheel the harpsichord into Studio Two and, and use it on piggies. And Ken Scott said, no, don't touch it. It's all set up for an orchestral session the next day. We'll move into Studio One and use the harpsichord. And I thought, well, I'll just check that story is actually true, that there was an orchestral session the next day. And uh, sure enough, Abbey Road had kept a diary of all their sessions. And it turns out that Jacqueline Dupre was recording the Mon Cello Concerto (laughs) in Studio One. And that has a harpsichord part. And so... If you listen to Jacqueline Dupre performing the Mon Cello Concerto, the harpsichord you hear on it is the one that was played on Piggies. That's an extraordinary and <laughs> so, very wonderful fact. So that, that's the extent that we've gone to to find out. I'm a fabulous, fabulous vegetarian. One more, one more time. Not for that far back. For some, some people might say, so if you're really not into the Beatles, why would you buy this? And, and as you're talking, I, I suppose what's wonderful about uh, the whole package, if you like, and particularly the outtakes, is the way that you can trace something from a very basic idea right through. And I think anybody who writes either music or prose or poetry, anybody who drafts anything, would be fascinated just to hear how things progress and the moment as you say where 
one thing can bring it completely live, like the harpsichord. Suddenly it lifts, it's been a bit plodding, nothing's really happening, and suddenly, and we all know that process if you've been involved in any kind of artistic or creative process. So I suppose I've answered that question. Why would you buy? But yeah, how would you answer that question? Yeah, I, I think. I, um, without wanting to sound pretentious, <laughs> far be it from me to say, um, we are really talking about a musical act that is on the same level as if you were living in the age of Mozart. This, this scholarship involved, you have to treat it with the same seriousness, you know, I think, because I know this stuff is going to endure forever. You know, I, I really do think that this will be listened to in 200 years' time, 500 years' time. I really can't imagine a time when people won't have enjoyment from this music. Uh, so to be able to, as you said, trace the development of a song from its very early version through to the finished version and see how the inspiration, the creativity came together to make it the familiar version we know is just very important and fascinating to hear. I mean, we mustn't get away from the fact this is hugely enjoyable. It's not just scholarship. Finally, Kev, because we do have to finish off, sadly, although we could probably go on all day. Um, obviously, the White Album came out in 1968, at the end of 68. What happened next in the Beatles' story? Uh, just fill us in, really, from, from, from the end of that, from the release of the White Album. It went to number one despite the record company's fears that people wouldn't buy an expensive double album, but it, it in America it was huge. Two million copies flew out in a matter of weeks. There were some manufacturing problems in Britain, so uh, of course it was number one, but uh, people who wanted mono copies found that their shop would only have stereo copies, and, and so it, it was an enormous success. And there was a plan that they were going to appear at the Roundhouse Theatre in London and, and play tracks from the White Album. And in the Beatle Monthly fan magazine, there was even a, a lottery to get tickets to go and see these concerts. That plan changed, and then they thought that what they would do is they would rehearse new songs, completely new songs, having only just a few weeks before release 30. They were going to, in January 69, going to rehearse from scratch a brand new batch of songs and then do a televised live concert. This is the ambition of the Beatles at the time. So they went into Twickenham Film Studios on January the 2nd, 1969, and were filmed all the time as they rehearsed. Uh, famously, George lost his patience with that and walked out of the sessions, and there was a hiatus for a little while. And then they decided to move to the basement studio of Apple. Uh, they just had a moved into Savile Row, and in the basement they had their own studio, and they were filmed in there. And having had all these ambitious plans to appear on an ocean liner or in the desert or next to a volcano or whatever, they decided just to go up on the roof of the Apple building and play a concert. And that became Let It Be, but it was delayed while the film was edited. So that came out, the last album, May 1970, uh, but in the meantime, they then recorded an album called Abbey Road, which could be actually the most popular album of the Beatles catalogue now, uh, and an immaculate album. And we talked about George Martin losing the classroom with the White Album. He tells the story that Paul McCartney rang him up and said, um, we want you to produce 
an album just like you used to. And and George Martin said, really, you know, I, I can do it just like we used to, you know, thinking of Sgt. Pepper, I think. Yeah, yeah, we want you to do that. So you get a very beautifully produced, immaculate recording, Abbey Road. And famously, the second side of Abbey Road had this long medley of songs. They always referred to it as the long one. And all these songs are melded together. It was a good way of getting rid of half-written songs, actually, is what they also say. Uh, but if anybody's familiar with the second side of Abbey Road, after Here Comes the Sun has finished, you get this lovely long medley. And so that was really the last album they recorded together, even though it was the last but one album in their career. And that was that? That was that as a group together until when the anthology came out, uh, the three that were left, George, Ringo and Paul, uh, overdubbed onto some demos of John, so we heard Free as a Bird and Real Love in the mid-90s. So that was a kind of a Beatles reunion. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I always think it's good in a way that they finished, you know, because, you know, you can speculate, well, what would have been the next album? If you look at the solo albums, what would have been on the next Beatles album? If you look at the songs on Paul McCartney's Ram LP or John's... Plastic Owner Band LP and George's All Things Must Pass. You know, what would have all they could have been the songs on the next Beatles album? Would have been pretty stunning. But I'm I, I think it's good that uh, they stopped then, uh, and we have that wonderful catalogue recorded in such a short time. All those albums in just six and a half years. Well, Kevin, it's been fantastic talking to you, and I think um, you know listening to particularly the outtakes. Uh, really demonstrates some of the things you've been talking about in terms of the the way they work together, the kind of humour, the warmth, and the, just the creativity, the ideas, uh, and the and the hard work they put into it. So uh, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful thing you've been part of. It's great, and the remixes are, are just lustrous, beautiful. So thanks ever so much for coming on. And yeah, it's a pleasure, Pete. And um, we're going to finish off with Blackbird. Yeah, this is an outtake. Uh, Paul played this many, many, many times in the studio, just trying to figure out, as you hear him say in the outtake, what voice to use. And it's a, such a gentle performance. And that song is a tricky song to play on the guitar. I'm a guitarist, and I, <laughs> I know from experience it's not easy playing that song. And actually, I talked to Howard Goodall about Blackbird, and he said, you know, those chords are just straight out of a bark chorale. You know, it has that feel about it and this is an album track you know this was never released as a single I mean that's the astounding thing as well the quality of every song and not one song from this album was released as a single at the time and they recorded Hey Jude and decided to leave it off the album that's, that's the other thing I, I love you know the, uh, the confidence of that you know and, and Blackbird is an album track
you want to just keep a few that you think are worth it, you know. See, if we're ever to reach it, I'll be able to tell you when I've just done it. I don't know, you know. I should think, I should think so. It just needs forgetting about it. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, it's a decision which voice to use, you know. I think it's better quality. Love the control. Love the command. Love the space bar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. Come back the way you are.